0: We've had two FCPA enforcement actions this year. One is involving WPP. What are the key lessons learned from this enforcement action? I posed that question to John Davis and James Tillen, members at Miller and Chevalier, and they explore those questions and many others in this uh, most interesting podcast on the WPP FCPA enforcement action. Are you interested in learning about how design thinking can improve your compliance program? Then check out my latest podcast, Design Thinking and Compliance, where with my co-host, Karsten Tams, we explore this question. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And you're in for a treat today because I'm in for a treat today because we're going to have a lot of fun. I have John Davis and James Tellen, members at Miller and Chevalier, and we're going to geek out on the YPP case. So, gentlemen, uh, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Tom. Great to be back. Appreciate you having us.
0: So, this, uh, in many ways, was a fascinating case. Uh, Lots going on. um, Lots going on from the compliance perspective. Lots to unpack. So, which one of you guys wants to give us the basic facts?
2: I can do it. Uh, This is John. Uh, So basically, WPP is a large advertising agency worldwide. Uh, They uh, employed a lot of different people in a lot of different countries around the world. Uh, Basically, uh, for a period of time in the mid part of this decade, they underwent a very rapid expansion, buying out uh, interests of local advertising firms in what the SEC terms high-risk jurisdictions. That includes China, India, Brazil some other places we're gonna talk about. Uh, and the, uh, the way that WPP bought these companies, they bought a majority interest, but then left often the founders in place with various types of financial incentives in order to uh, continue to build their network and, and run each agency as they'd done before. Uh, and they did this in a number of places they did have a central uh, legal and audit function, and technically all of these uh, acquired agencies were supposed to abide by various WPP policies, internal controls, etc. The SEC points out, however, that often that didn't always work in practice. Uh, and so what happened at the end of the day is that the SEC order uh, talks about various problems in a, Couple of different countries focusing on India and China. Also talks about issues in Brazil and Peru, and we can talk about those in detail.
0: The thing that makes one of the things that makes this case so delicious is the failure started right off the bat. Uh, first of all, I have to say one more time, they had no compliance program, or excuse me, no compliance function, no CCO. So this is a worldwide multi-billion-dollar organization with some. 200,000-plus employees um, with no compliance function. I think that may be the answer. <laughs> Nevertheless, the failure started in M&A. So I was really wanted to ask you guys not only uh, the critical nature of pre-acquisition M&A, but how do you go about doing this when you literally are, are on a sprint to acquire as many local companies as you can?
1: I think – it is important that you have to embed the compliance due diligence process into the commercial due diligence process the the you know obviously these companies in expanding rapidly are still considering the the, the, the benefits that could come from those acquisitions and and looking at the the dollars and and cents associated with that well at the same time that that's happening, the compliance uh, due diligence needs to happen. Uh, and then at this, also when planning the integration on the business side, you also plan compliance integration at the same time. And so it really is a key part uh, of uh, acquisition to think about anti-corruption due diligence, anti-corruption compliance integration. And it doesn't need to prevent rapid growth. It just needs to work in parallel with rapid growth at, at the same pace as the rapid growth to, to, to help mitigate risks. And I think this founder keeping the founders in place with this earn-on provisions um, is uh, a model that has some risks associated, but that doesn't mean you, you can't do it. I think John, maybe you you were talking before the call about this very point. It's it is it doesn't mean to say that how WPP grew is is wrong. It just means that you you need to take some precautions if you're going to do it.
0: I thought this was a great learning example. Of uh, a compensation strategy, that I think we all would agree can be appropriate, and certainly we could even advise our our clients on why you need to have an earnout provision. Uh, but it can turn high risk, and so John, maybe you could talk about what happens or how do you rather prevent a compensation strategy that is appropriate from becoming what's called a perverse in, incentive in clients and. How do you monitor that on an ongoing basis?
2: Yeah, it's a good it's a good point, and it is a model that can work, and indeed, other uh, companies and other sectors, especially in the tech sector, use it a fair amount. Uh, and it and it does allow you to uh, retain the services of founders and other key personnel that you want to keep and that you want to keep incentivized to grow the business. Uh, at the same time, I think the reading the the papers in this case shows that. What they didn't do is inculcate with the founder, well, they didn't do a couple of things. As James said, they didn't uh, do really any kind of identifiable risk analysis up front as to what, was, what kind of risk they were taking on when they were buying into these companies. Um, what I think that meant was they didn't look very closely at what the founders of these local agencies were doing in terms of their business practices. So they didn't have a good idea going in as to how these businesses were being run, which, of course, is something you really do need to do and dig into from a compliance perspective in order to get your integration right and it doesn't look like they did that secondly i think they they um they gave uh the founders a, a lot of latitude and again that can work but you also have to train uh these types of folks in terms of what the company's values are wh- why those incentives are also accompanied by compliance related incentives uh, such that you don't, you have offsetting or at least complementary types of financial packages that that don't, uh, perversely as you say, Tom, uh, drive folks to ignore uh, controls and and frankly to commit fraud. Uh, some of these, uh, couple, at least in a couple of these cases, yeah. uh, the ones in India, uh, part of the problem was that the CEO was. Uh, uh, basically using these types of, of fraudulent behaviors to to uh, take money for himself and at least in one case t- to cancel out old uh, balance sheet um, receivables that uh, he would have probably dragged upon his compensation and you know again I gave him an incentive to come up effectively whole cloth with a, a, a fake advertising uh Program that, uh, in part, was used to bribe officials, according to the SEC, but in part was uh, basically to clean up his own balance sheet. Uh, and I think the incentives that he was offered under these earnout provisions uh, drove that. And what you need to do is offset that with uh, training, with related compliance consent incentives, in order to make sure that people stay in control. And then, frankly, put uh, you know an accountability structure on top of these types of founders or these types of local or regional leaders in order to make sure that they're, they're uh, doing what they should be.
0: I was originally going to ask you guys about Mr. Red Flags, but the more I thought about it, I wanted to really maybe focus on a broader discussion of a culture of reporting, not simply a whistleblower, because we had some fairly dramatic whistleblowing in this case, That whistleblowing failures at the corporate level, But that led directly to investigative failures. So I was wondering if you might tie those together to help people understand, hey, it's not just having a whistleblower reporting system. It's not just intaking it. It's assessing it at intake. And equally importantly, it's elevating it for an appropriate level of investigation. So could you maybe talk us through how you would counsel, excuse me, counsel, a client really to that for that scope and so that they understand they are distinct things but they are much more interrelated than than not
1: yeah absolutely great question and the um it shows that at least in this company they received a number of whistleblower complaints so certainly speak up was part of their culture it was unfortunately the investigation part that they seem to fail, and and one of the importance of uh, you know you treat investigations like you treat any part of your compliance program. You have to have policies and procedures on it. You need to uh, have a process to, at the at, as you said, intake, assess the 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 level uh, uh, and credibility of of the allegation, and then have a proportionate response, and also put it in the hands of people that are objective and have. The skills and ability to to investigate, and what it appears here is that they, uh, for example, in the India situation, gave it to the regional finance person to investigate, not like legal counsel, not not, and as you heard, they didn't have a compliance department to look into it. And that regional finance person made some sort of effort by hiring an accounting firm, but that accounting firm didn't have access to the. To the material they needed, they relied on the CFO and CEO of the India entity to provide the materials, who were the people implicated in the wrongdoing, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. You want to try to get at it from a, from a different sources. So, having a policy and having a process and having people who are skilled. And know what they're doing is incredibly important. And now, and also when to bring in outside resources that have those skills. If you can't accomplish what you need to internally, so it's incredibly important to have a, a robust investigation process that supports that whistle blow reporting uh, line and and, and uh, speak up culture. That that is uh, the other part of this of this uh, important aspect of compliance.
2: Yeah, and one, I agree. And one thing I'll add is, too, structurally it sounds like WPP wasn't set up the right way. And, and, Tom, you mentioned the lack of the compliance function at the beginning. I think that is critical. You've got to have somebody that's integrating various different reporting chains because one other thing that was happening here is they were getting internal audit results that should have been sending up red flags in addition to the whistleblower. Uh, aspects, and and there doesn't appear to have been anybody. They had a legal function, they had an internal audit function, but they didn't appear to be talking to each other, and there didn't appear to be anybody in the organization who could put together various of these inputs coming from different places, different speak up provisions and different monitoring uh, mechanisms that were in place, to really respond appropriately um, either under a policy or otherwise. Uh, to what they were seeing, and that led the, to repeated failures uh, to, to get on top of what was going on within these uh, various companies in a way that the SEC said, you know, a- allowed stuff to happen for years.
0: So let me take it uh, one step further, because I had a colleague named Jim McGrath, who's sadly no longer with us, but about 10 years ago, he started talking about A serious problem begets the need for a serious investigative response. And when someone hires a firm like Miller, part of the reason, I think, is your reputation in dealing with the government on a variety of matters, not simply FCPA. But the other part of hiring a seriously experienced investigative team or law law firm investigative team is they know how to do an investigation. And as you said, John, it was pretty clear that whoever this accounting partner at this unnamed accounting firm was, he didn't know how to do an investigation. So I was wondering if you might speak to why it's so important to have experienced investigators who know the basic questions to ask and can follow the evidence wherever it may go.
2: Sure. I, I think, and again, you can have experienced investigators either inside the company or outside the company and or ideally both. So that's not to suggest that you have to go to someone like us every time. But you certainly want to have folks who are able to exercise independent judgment, who are set up within, if you're inside the company, who are set up within the structure of the company so that they have a level of independence and an ability to push hard for for information that they might need uh, without interference by management, that they have a clear set of guidelines as to how they're going about to do things. But uh, it it does, in some ways, we've said, you know, it's almost worse to do a bad investigation than no investigation at all. Uh, I've told clients that many times. Um, and, uh, and that I think is illustrated by what happened here is that uh, the company really looks worse because they, tr- they did something that didn't play, that didn't follow some real basics in terms of independence, in terms of what types of steps that uh, any investigator would probably take uh, in terms of collecting documents and so forth that didn't happen. and, and And it made them look worse. So I think uh, what you want to do, and it it does matter in terms of if you're ever going to be looked at by the government, in terms of credibility, uh, if you're ever facing your shareholders or other investors, if you're facing banks or auditors, all of them will uh, ask some hard questions. And what it means is a company who's looking at an issue really has to – get someone to take a look at the issue, again, can be internal or or external, who who knows how to run things, uh, how to ask the basic questions, what types of uh, uh, steps that government investigators are going to expect the company to have taken, um, and what kind of answers that the government, if they're looking at things, are going to expect the company to know when a disclosure is going to be
1: made. I mean, here it was it was quite uh, amazing to see that they had access to the emails in the U.S. <laughs> uh, and and that, that first review they did by the audit firm didn't get to that, those emails, which were key given how the CEO and the founder uh, of the India operations controlled those operations and therefore going to them for the source, you, you can't rely on it when they were the ones implicated in the wrongdoing. And so it's very difficult uh, to get... Uh, the information you would need directly from the Indian sub- subsidiary. So, but to be able to get the emails, that would be a, a core issue and a, a core source of data. And the fact that the the when they did inter- investigate the correct way, they also used that due diligence firm, which was able to to find out the the sources on the ground there, uh, what the connections between the official and the CEO. And so, uh, finding other sources of data is, is beyond just going directly to the Indian subsidiary was a was a significant part of, of cracking cracking the case open. And so knowing that and knowing where to go is, is incredibly important. And particularly in these jurisdictions, there's there's language barriers that might be present, there's um, different accounting practices, there's uh, different ways of operating a business and having that local understanding is incredibly important. And so you you need all these different skill sets to, to be able to investigate uh, sufficiently.
0: We're going to take a break, have a quick message, and we'll be right back with more of
1: James Tillen and John Davis. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating.
2: All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer
1: they've changed so you don't have to download the new bumble now let me turn to an area that may be more in your bailiwick and that was
0: the china component of this enforcement action and although the the bribery scheme was of some interest What really intrigued me, and I wanted your opinion on, was the red flag that was raised because of the result. But typically in an FCPA case, the result is a sale. But there can be a wide variety of other results. And so I was wondering if you might be able to talk to, what did you see in terms of lessons learned that you could uh, talk to clients or counsel clients on about the results you might get when a foreign government official is involved?
2: Sure. So, what uh, what happened in China is that uh, uh, there, the China subsidiary had uh, undertaken various tax avoidance or, or tax maximization or minimization uh, uh, schemes that uh, were in place. I think at the time, the uh, WPP uh, bought the company, but that continued apace. Indeed, there was an internal audit. That WPP can perform that that basically identified these tax avoidance issues as uh, or schemes as issues. Uh, unfortunately, n- nothing was done about it. Uh, in the in the, in the course of that audit, as well, there were red flags suggesting that um, the avoidance schemes, and then subsequently, when the Chinese authorities started to audit the Chinese subsidiary th- themselves and perhaps discover these avoidance schemes, uh, there were clear indicators or red flags of, of potential uh, payments to officials coming up. And so, for example, uh, there was, uh, at during the Chinese authorities' audit, the auditors suggested that the company hire a vendor um, to perform services. And, of course, uh, the SEC papers show that the vendor's real purpose was to uh, make Pro- probably make payments to uh, those officials, although looks like the SEC wasn't able to, to track those all the way through. Um, but, uh, but clearly what you had in place here was a tax avoidance scheme that was of questionable legality. I think anybody looking at that, knowing that that existed, could reasonably anticipate that that, especially in a place like China or, frankly, in many countries where you may have the authorities uh, ultimately undertaking an investigation of that, Created a bribery risk, and that bribery risk was not recognized even after there were clear red flags with regard to this vendor, with regard to some email communications coming from the CFO to the regional uh, management, where they said basically, uh, "We're we're we're using uh, our personal social connections to manage the audit. We are uh, going to resolve things by." Uh, You know, getting to gifts and entertainment, things like that, all of which played out. Um, And so, in terms of risk areas, uh, as you say, there there was not this is not involving sales, but it was involving a regulatory intervention by the tax authorities that uh, somebody looking at this up front could have identified the fact that the tax avoidance schemes that appeared to be in place here were going to be risks not only of violations of Chinese tax law, but of also uh, bribery risks because you would have to potentially pay an official to look the other way uh, to let those continue.
0: Let me now turn to another bribery scheme, and this involved Peru, and, and perhaps, James, this might be a little more in your bailiwick in Latin America. When I originally read the bribery scheme, I was uh, struck by its sophistication, or at least my perceived sophistication of it, because it was a cross-border bribery scheme routing monies through another uh, Latin American country, Colombia, But then I wondered, you know, perhaps it was just almost more of just a regional thing where they shared money across national borders. So I wanted to ask you, one, was this a sophisticated mechanism to pay bribes, or uh, do you really need to, to look at a more of a geo region than simply a country-by-country Now, country Well,
1: I think it highlights a, a risk that uh, John and I have seen in a, a number of cases where Intercompany transactions may not get the same scrutiny as transactions with counterparties outside the business, and so it, it, I think it, the 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 Peru subsidiary may have taken advantage of controls that were more lax and, and being able to direct or request related uh, you know, Colombian and Chilean subsidiaries to to sell the payments and 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 got less questions than if. Uh, than uh, if they were trying to make a payment to an, to another third party directly. So I think this is something where uh, internal controls or anti-corruption compliance might not necessarily flag right away, but it is a risk intercompany transactions. And so that's one of the things that jumped out to me. I mean, Peru is it is a weird one because there there they were the intermediary. They were paying bribes on behalf of a construction firm instead of on behalf of themselves to this local mayor and. In Lima, and um, so it, it was unusual, but it definitely highlighted this risk that that John and I have seen.
0: Uh, the other thing that intrigued me about this case, at least for me, there were several open questions. Uh, this was an SEC Securities and Exchange Commission enforcement action. But kind of the first question that popped in my mind was, "Where is the Department of Justice?" This would have seemed like something that could have at least been close to a potential criminal charge or a deferred prosecution agreement. Any real thoughts on that,
2: one way or the other? Yeah, it's hard to say. We it's it, it's all speculation. Uh, you know, they did they have a New York headquarters. The the SEC papers talk about the fact that financial transactions went through the banking system. Uh, so I think you're right. I think there there was evidence that uh, the DOJ could have had jurisdiction here. Um, So it's unclear what happened. Uh, DOJ does look at things through different lenses sometimes. There may have been evidentiary issues. And indeed, I think there's a little bit of that maybe in the SEC, because if you notice, the the anti-bribery charge only goes to the India stuff. Uh, And while there's discussions of potential payments to officials in the Chinese and the Peruvian uh, uh, schemes, those are really only at the end of the day cited as books and records and controls issues. And so it's possible that the DOJ, with its higher standards under the criminal law side, may have looked at what was being provided and decided, uh, for whatever reason, uh, that, that they weren't um, able to to meet the evidentiary thresholds that they were going to have to meet as opposed to the SEC, which has lower thresholds that way It's also possible that, that uh, knowing the SEC was going to move forward they just, The DOJ may have decided they wanted to use resources elsewhere But that's all speculation
1: but It is notable that the SEC uh, papers say that it, They don't say this was a voluntary disclosure And normally that's one of the big ways to um, you know satisfy the DOJ's uh, uh, and, you know, qualify for declination or uh, uh, along with cooperation or remediation, and, and that wasn't there. But I think, as John said, they're, 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 they may have been just satisfied with the D, that the SEC got their pound of flesh, and that was sufficient, given the the jurisdictional hook was not as um, uh, not that strong for the India. Uh, issue so yeah it's it's speculation but uh, normally they're so well coordinated with very few exceptions that the fact that there there was no DOJ uh, issue release suggests that maybe there there won't be one so it's it's interesting
0: although we haven't said it yet YPP uh, was a UK company based in the Isle of Jersey mm-hmm. uh, so obviously begs the question U.S. jurisdiction however the SEC was clear that. Some financial uh, finances went through the U.S. banking system, and more importantly, emails uh, as part of the – detailing part of the bribery scheme were kept on U.S. servers. So I don't think in my mind there was a jurisdictional question, but for me the question was, where on earth was the SFO? We have a 250,000-employee U.K. company with billions in revenue, and as far as I can tell, not a peak from the SFO. (laughs) Any thoughts on that one?
1: It is surprising particularly how the us has done and in the UK have coordinated on several recent resolutions i mean they've they've done that for for years and years but but the last couple including uh, thinking about uh, you know airbus and and other ones they they have been very coordinated so you would have expected if the SEC was moving forward and the SFO was w- moving forward there would have been some coordination and and at the same time, so it is unusual. I can't think of a good reason why the SFO wouldn't be interested in this. So uh, your guess is as good as mine.
2: Yeah, I was going to say resources is the only thing I can come up with. That is <laughs> that they, 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 I know they've been stretched by a number of things. Uh, uh, and so it's possible that they may have just said, uh, we're going to let the U.S. folks take care of this and because we, we have other fish to fry, as it were. So.
0: And the last real open question for me was... If there was ever a case to me that seemed to beg for a monitorship, it was this. We had a company with no compliance function up to 2017. We did not have self-disclosure. It was unclear to me how much cooperation there was uh, by uh, YPP, at least early on. And the culture of YPP seemed to me to be one which was not respecting no compliance. Nor doing business ethically and in compliance. So, as as our last speculation, I suppose. Any thoughts uh, as as to why no monitor? This this really even didn't seem to meet the standards to me of the Benchkowski member.
2: Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to tell. I, th- I mean, the only the only thing I can the only thing I'll say is that the the SEC does talk about a, a fair amount of remediation that they did uh, in terms of hiring a bunch of people uh, integrating. Uh, uh, the networks in a way that that appears to have brought them much more centrally under uh, compliance function and, and and much heavier monitoring uh, and so forth. And so again speculation would be that uh, that the, what they presented to the SEC as their revamped compliance program, their revamped culture, they fired they did fire a bunch of people uh, according to the SEC. Uh, was enough to, to justify uh, not getting a monitor. Um, but as you say, it's uh, there's a lot that they had to overcome. So uh, it'd be interesting to know how much they WPP spent on all of their remediation. Uh, and it's possible that if they spent a fair amount, that could have helped too. The other thing is systemic. Uh, uh, you know, I think there's been most people will speculate that uh, under the current administration, as now that we've gotten people settled in at both the SEC uh, Division of Enforcement and, and the, the Criminal Division side, uh, that, that the Binkowski memo on the DOJ side and then the, the similar considerations from the SEC side may start to favor uh, monitors a little bit more than they have the last few years. Uh, and that this case is really kind of an interim. It's still in that interim period, so they didn't have the people in place that that could have maybe made that policy move uh, by the time they got this settled.
0: Gentlemen, uh, I told our audience at the start this is going to be a fun podcast, and I decided I'd judge my podcast by, number one, how much I learned, and number two, how much fun I (laughs) have. So uh, it was great on both scores. I really want to thank you guys for reaching out. I knew this would be great the minute I heard you wanted to talk about it and you didn't disappoint. But before we leave, if I could ask if anyone wanted more information on this case or more information about you guys are the firm, where could they go?
1: Sure, they could go to uh, millershevalier.com. We have a newsletter, a quarterly newsletter on all anti-corruption developments focused on FCPA, corporate enforcement action, individual actions, policy developments and, and international developments such as SFO resolutions or Brazilian resolutions. And so, in fact, that just came out uh, last week, uh, so that's a great resource, and we did write up the WPP uh, resolution in that last newsletter, so please check it out. Let it email John or me. We add you to our distribution list.
0: Uh, and let me just chime in. That's a great resource. They do it quarterly. They have a year in wrap-up, which is great, but the quarterly uh, reports are equally important uh, for all compliance professionals, white-collar defense lawyers, and anyone else. Gentlemen, I want to thank you again. Like I said, it's been a ton of fun, and I look forward to continuing the conversation.
2: Thank you so thanks much, for, Tom. Thanks for having us.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will check out the latest edition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Hidden Traffic, a podcast hosted by Gwen Hassan. Wynn takes a look at human trafficking and modern slavery in all its forms, but more importantly, what can you as a compliance professional do to help fight this international scourge? Check out Hidden Traffic, newly premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network.